What happens when you do everything you've ever been taught correctly and it still isn't enough? I'm Stephanie Gick, and thank you for tuning in to episode 3 of Ominous Ontario. In Toronto in 1986, parents didn't keep their children in eyesight as tightly as they do today. It wasn't unusual to see kids riding the subway or the city bus alone and letting your child walk a few blocks by themselves to visit friends was fine. Children would often come home, lifting a key from a chain around their necks that they tucked under their shirts, and let themselves inside while their parents were at work. July 25, 1986, changed that carefree lifestyle for thousands of children in the greater Toronto area forever. 11-year-old Alison Perrot was a natural leader, energetic, with a gift to take off running like the wind. She was part of a track team for youth and had just qualified for an international track meet in New Jersey. Her name was even published in the Toronto Star for this incredible feat. It was just before 11am when the phone rang in the Parat house that warm July morning. Allison was home alone and she answered the call. On the line was a man saying that he was a photographer and that he needed Allison to go to the University of Toronto's Varsity Stadium for a team photo. Allison had trained there before and had had team photos taken. There was nothing unusual about this request. She called her mother Leslie for permission and the two discussed the route she would take to get there. Allison went to a French immersion school downtown and took public transit every day, so both her and her mother were comfortable with her taking the subway the four stops from their home to the stadium. Allison told Leslie she would be home by 2.30 and headed out. Passengers reported seeing Allison on the 20-minute subway ride. She left the train, and a store got an image of Allison walking to the stadium. She did not seem nervous or concerned about her trip, and by all accounts, she made it to the stadium just fine. At 3.30, Leslie had still not heard from Allison, and she was starting to suspect that something was wrong. When she still hadn't heard from her daughter by 5, Leslie and her husband Peter began to call friends and family. At 6 p.m., they called the police. Almost immediately, a massive search for the missing girl was underway. Hundreds of volunteers in the community came out to look for Allison, but it wasn't searchers that ended up finding the young track star. On July 27th, two days after Allison went missing, two boys found her body while walking in the thick woods at Kings Mill Park along the banks of the Humber River directly under a bridge. I am about to give graphic details of the condition of her body. She was found naked, curled up in the fetal position, and she had been brutally raped. She had vaginal tearing and she had semen inside her. Allison had been bound and strangled. Police believed the case would be solved quickly. While DNA was still in its infancy, police took seven swabs of DNA evidence from inside Allison, and with the crime occurring in broad daylight, they had no reason to believe this case would be difficult to solve at all. A hotline was set up for tips, and a reward of $50,000 was offered for information that would help capture the person that brutalized the beautiful blue-eyed little girl. 18,000 people were initially interviewed. Everything and everyone that could have been a lead, from the neighborhood to the stadium and its employees, were checked out as a possible lead. 
In that investigation, they learned that someone had been calling different homes with the last name Parrot around the greater Toronto area and asking for the Allison Parrot who was going to the International Youth Track Championships in New Jersey. Even more scary. On July 14th, just 11 days before the fateful call answered by Allison, a babysitter was in the Parrot house watching her younger brother, and she received that same call asking for Allison. The babysitter inadvertently let a killer know that he had found the right house, and that was chilling to many parents across Toronto, and in fact Ontario. This is evidence that he had been gathering information about the girl, and ruled out basically anyone that was known to her as a suspect. Murders carried out by complete strangers are the most rare, and the most difficult to solve. That proved true in the rape and murder of Alison Parrot in 1986. Leslie and Peter Parrot had very successful careers, Peter as an engineer and Leslie as an ad executive. Allison and her brother had both taken street-proofing courses, as had many children across the province, and they knew how to spot and handle danger. Allison did everything right, from asking permission to planning the route with her mother beforehand. She didn't take shortcuts off beaten paths. In the previous three years, three other Toronto youth had disappeared. Sharon Keenan Morningstar in 1983, Christine Jessup in 1984, and Nicole Morin in 1985. Only Christine's killer was identified, and this was after the wrong man went to jail. After the death of Allison, the Parades didn't want to see revenge. They felt that the fear-based approach to justice and street-proofing wasn't working. Just two weeks after the murder, Leslie went back to work. Co-workers let her grieve and listened when she needed to talk. She didn't want to do nothing, and in May 1987, she, along with partners in her ad agency, created Canada's only national street-proofing campaign, which any Canadian aged 30 and up likely remembers. The Stay Alert, Stay Safe program was initially launched as pamphlets and outreach in Toronto schools, designed to teach children to be confident in listening to their instincts. In 1989, Canadian Tire picked up the campaign, and it grew into a national campaign featuring rabbits Bert and Gert, whose long ears were meant to be a simple reminder to use your senses. For 10 years, the case was cold. But Inspector Steve Irwin, who had just used DNA to finally solve the Scarborough rape case in Toronto, decided to start pulling up cold case murders that were sexually motivated, and the brutal rape and murder of Alison Perrot was one of the cases he pulled. He had also been an original inspector, answering calls to the hotline that was set up in 1986. He had often thought of Allison in that time, and he knew that seven swabs of the killer's semen was taken from Allison's body. Back when the murder first happened, one of the people questioned by police was a man named Francis Carl Roy. He was a person of interest in the case, primarily because he had a previous criminal record which included assaults, break and enter, petty theft, possession of stolen property, and rape. He was also an avid runner, and would sometimes run at Varsity Stadium. Roy was eliminated as a suspect early on because he had a strong alibi for that day. He had gone running, and then he met a friend in a bar. Furthermore, the day that Allison was found, Roy showed up at a police station and turned himself in for assaulting a 20-year-old woman two days earlier. For this assault, which occurred while he was on probation for the rape of a 14-year-old and 19-year-old, he received a $200 fine and a five-week jail sentence. 
1988, Francis Carl Roy moved to Vancouver, where he landed a job as a youth counselor with the city. He lied about his education, and they never did a background check on the criminal. One year after arriving in Vancouver, a man was arrested for stealing a block of cheese. There had been some murders of sex trade workers in the city, and the man told the officers arresting him that he had seen Roy exiting the bushes with a prostitute, and that he saw Roy hiding something in those bushes. When the officers checked, they found a knife and a rope hidden under a rock. They took this information to their superiors, who told them it was hardly credible information given it came from a suspect under arrest at the time. Two years later, Roy was in a bar fight in Vancouver, which prompted him to make the move back to Toronto. He was never charged with any murders in Vancouver, but those two officers couldn't stop thinking about that knife and rope hidden away. So, in 1996, they gave the information to the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System database. After Toronto's detectives pulled out some files and found that information in the database, they reviewed the first interview with Francis Carl Roy and were able to find inconsistencies in that interview. They immediately put surveillance on him. After a few days, they collected DNA from discarded cigarette butts in a coffee cup. Compared to the swabs taken from Alison Perrot, they were able to make a match to Francis Carl Roy on July 25, 1996. 10 years to the day after Allison left to meet a photographer at Varsity Stadium. Roy was arrested on July 31, 1996, and during the search of his home, police did find a camera, a book on photography, and stolen ID cards identifying Roy as a photographer. It would be another three long years before the trial began, and it was going to be a doozy. I'm about to discuss a graphic rape of a 14-year-old girl, so discretion is advised. A 33-year-old woman gave up her right to remain private and was flown in from New Zealand to testify at the trial. During pre-trial, this woman bravely testified that when she was only 14 years old, Francis Carl Roy lured her away from her home and bound her. He repeatedly raped and sodomized the young girl and she said that he got obvious pleasure each time he inflicted more pain on the teenager. For this rape, and a very similar rape on a 19-year-old, he was sentenced to 11 years in jail. He was released after serving only two and a half years, and was on probation for this attack when Allison's murder occurred. She left Canada after having her own family, as she didn't feel it was safe thanks to the brutal assault that he inflicted on her. Canadians were outraged to learn what evidence the jury was never going to hear. A judge ruled certain evidence could not be presented in order to ensure a fair trial for Roy. No mention could be made of the previous rapes, which both took place in wooded areas, or the fact that he was on probation at the time. The victim bravely attended the trial anyway so he could see that she stood with the family. Also not told to the jury was the camera photography book, and bogus photographer credentials that were found in his Dundas Street house during the search. In pre-trial, Roy also tried to claim that he had a twin brother that committed the crime, which he of course did not. That attempted defense was also not allowed to be revealed to jurors. Once the trial was underway, the defense made a lot of claims since they knew the really good stuff wasn't going to be allowed to be in trial. They claimed he wasn't smart enough to commit a murder. They told the jury he had no interest in photography and there was no proof he ever had. But most outrageous was Roy's explanation for how his DNA got in the body, and it was shocking and horrifying. 
please be advised, this is very graphic. Roy claimed that he was out for a run in the park and he had ducked into the woods to relieve himself. He said that at that point, he stumbled upon the already dead body of Allison. He said that he had masturbated earlier in the day and after he had urinated in the bushes, he decided to digitally penetrate the dead girl. He said that he must have had semen on him from masturbating earlier in the day and that's how it had gotten inside of her. The defense got one thing right. This guy was in no way smart. The trial lasted a month, and when it was over, the jury was out for a painfully long six days. For the survivor of his earlier gruesome attack, she was disgusted at the fact the jury didn't know her story. She said she spent six days chain-smoking and checking the internet. She got more angry as time passed, as did many other Canadians who knew the details that the jury did not. There was fear he might get away with murder. Finally, a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder was reached. This time, there would be no walking the streets in a few short years. Francis Carl Roy was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. That same year, Canadian Tigers stopped funding the Stay Alert, Stay Safe program, and it quietly faded away in 2006. Francis Carl Roy appealed his conviction in 2003, and it was denied. He is eligible for parole in 2024, when he will be 67 years old. Through all of this, the Parrot family has been a picture of grace. Leslie sounds like the most incredible woman. Frances Carl Roy's family approached her to offer their condolences, and Leslie, recognizing the pain that the family must also be experiencing, thanked them for their courage to speak to her and think of her family. She later made a documentary chronicling the journey of forgiveness that she has experienced. Even the night her daughter was found, a minister staying with the family to offer support said that they were not hoping for revenge and that they had a deep concern for the kind of person who could commit such cruel acts. Something that could have made a monster of Leslie instead grew into a campaign of safety many Canadians fondly remember and what may in fact have saved Canadian lives. I visited the grave of Alison Parrott and I feel she is buried in a cemetery so fitting for everything that she was in life. It's a large, busy place in Toronto, bustling with people, and easily hundreds of runners and cyclists are passing her every single day. Runners just like her. Thank you for listening, and please join me again as I bring you more ominous tales from across Ontario.